I want to clarify something real quick. When I'm saying ethical porn, I'm not talking about ethical porn as a genre. I'm talking about ethical in a human sense. The question, what is ethical porn? Porn is subjective. In an ideal world, I would love to reframe and rephrase that question to what is ethical porn consumption? And in my opinion, that involves the intent in which we consume that media. We hear a lot about porn literacy and the importance of being able to critically evaluate the adult media that we're consuming. And in my opinion, that's really what we should be focusing on. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about relationships and pornography and relationships to pornography. This is something that we haven't covered on this show in quite a long time, but we decided it was high time. We, we came back and looked at some of the information out there. It's fascinating stuff. And uh, what better way to celebrate Valentine's Day week than an episode talking all about porn? relationships. Yeah. (laughs) So in researching this episode, it turns out that it's incredibly hard to find any kind of unbiased articles or information about pornography, like almost impossible. Uh, Just like the, the vast majority, even when you're trying to search very technical things, like just statistics about the adult film industry or something like that, I would say 95% of the results you're going to get are negative gen- are having a very strong opinion that mm-hmm. they're backing up with a lot of facts and I'm putting those in quotes because maybe some are, maybe some aren't. We're going to talk about that a little bit in the episode. Uh, but like very, very strong feelings that like right from the start, you're like, mm, I don't trust this source to have any kind of objective sense, even if maybe they're pulling their stats from some reputable places. So in looking into this, I ended up, Um, kind of having to find some articles on sites like Psychology Today that are going to write about it a little more objectively and then kind of follow the thread of like different people mentioning other studies, mentioning other people writing about it, things like that to put this together. So just to kind of put that out there that for each piece of information that we talk about in this episode, if you go and search this yourself, you'll probably find 10 other articles or maybe 100 other articles vehemently contradicting it. So with this whole episode, just understand that, take it with a grain of salt, but hopefully with this, we can challenge some of those things that you'll find out there otherwise. We, we did the work of digging through the internet so you don't have to. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Go us. That said, in the same landscape, of course, you're also going to find thousands of articles that still state that polyamorous relationships and queer relationships are wrong or on the opposite side, that they're unequivocally always healthy and correct. Right. And, the and right they're all going to back be. it up with research. Yeah. yeah. Or, that, or that BDSM is harmful to society or that promoting transgender rights are hurting our children or that asexual people need to be fixed. You know, so what all of these topics have in common is that there's some linkage to sex in some way. And that digs at some really uncomfortable places in our culture And when we dig at uncomfortable places, that means that often there's an emotional charge. And when there's an emotional charge, often it means there's very, very strong opinions. And I'm talking both for and against here. Hopefully, all of us recording and all of you listening at home are able to keep an open mind, try to put aside some of our immediate reactions and give some space to entertain entertain some other ideas. I think that's really the main point of this episode is not about trying to convince people that porn is all wrong or that porn is all good and we should never be critical of it, just to present a little bit more of just more information so that you can take that in and make some decisions for yourself and how it fits into your life. Alrighty, to start off with, let's talk 
a little bit about porn. Like, what is it? Why is it such a hot button topic? Well, (laughs) for your information, the adult entertainment industry as a whole is estimated to be uh, worth somewhere around or a little bit over $100 billion. So for comparison, that's essentially similar to the video game industry. It's kind of close in size. However, the overall entertainment industry is way, way bigger than that. When I hear the word billion now, it's funny. I'm like, oh, that's not that much money because I think about things like Facebook or Apple that are, you know, (laughs) Uh that are valued at trillions of dollars now. But I understand that that's that there are very few things on the planet that are valued at that much money. Mm -hmm. Human brains are bad at understanding how much magnitude. Yes, you're right. right. We're just not good at at conceptualizing it. It's just too big. Yeah. (laughs) No, a hundred billion is very, very big for sure. Uh, And the podcast industry, for example, is around. $11 $11 billion. So much, much smaller than the porn yeah. industry is what it's valued at. Well, here's here's the, the little trick that can help with understanding orders of magnitude with okay. millions, billions, and trillions. So if we think about it, not in dollars, but in seconds. So a million seconds, that's 12 days. Okay. A billion seconds is 31 years. Whoa. A trillion seconds is thirty one thousand six hundred eighty eight years. So wow, that always Facebook. isn't that wild. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes my noodle a little bit because once we get to a million, we it kind of all turns to mush, and we're just like, uh, I uh, just it's sure it's just roughly the same. But it's actually quite a lot of difference between a million dollars and a billion dollars and a millionaire yeah. and a billionaire. Uh, but anyway, that's tangential. But maybe it gives no, you a sense you of the relative that. sizes of these industries. Absolutely, and porn is huge it's it's huge for so many people and according to various surveys over 90 percent of men report at least occasional use of porn i'm surprised that it's only 90 but maybe that's i mean that's a really high number statistically speaking for sure and this is self-reporting yes there's also going to be some people who don't you know claim that they don't right and researchers tend to view statistics on women as being less reliable because you know, there's a stigma out there just in general about porn use, but also um, estimates might go up to around 50% of watching porn, at least occasionally. Honestly, I'm surprised that that number is so low, but maybe, yeah, I, I'm assuming... Again, self-reporting. Yes, right? it's self-reporting. Like, so yeah. perhaps people don't want to say for sure that they are or are not watching. And there have also been some studies that showed porn watching has increased toward the beginning of the pandemic in 2020 when everyone was stuck at home. That surprises me not at all. Yeah, right. Like, of course. (laughs) Yeah. Like what in the world else is there to do, especially when people were locked down and couldn't go to work and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Couldn't yeah, if you're you know couldn't go out on dates, couldn't yeah. hook up with people, right? Yeah. It's like well, yeah. So got. it's funny that there there was this the researchers talked about there being this like noticeable uptick, mm-hmm. you know, not like twice as much or anything. It was a smallish uptick, but noticeable that that changed right at that point. Yeah. So then the next question that researchers would try to ask in these surveys and these questionnaires is not just who's watching it, you know, how much are they watching, but also why. What are the reasons that people give for why they watch it? So, uh, if we were playing, you know, Family Feud, and you had to guess, you know, the most common answer, it would probably be for for getting off, right? Definitely. (laughs) First thing my family would say if we were a team. (laughs) (laughs) So what a what a yeah, just what an episode of Family Feud. This what an uncomfortable episode of Family Feud. I mean, I think all episodes of Family Feud are a little uncomfortable, but this one really takes the cake. Fair enough. Yeah. So so around eighty five to ninety five percent of respondents stated that was the, the, one of their reasons. Uh, and they could check multiple. That's why these, these numbers are not going to add up to 100. They're going to end up more than that. But so the majority is for getting off, for arousal. Um, but another large portion said that it was about trying to regulate emotions or distract themselves or relieve boredom. So as a way to kind of self-medicate in a way or like self-treat some sort of, you know depression or boredom or anxiety or something like that. 
Um, like for example, 74% said it was about regulating emotions. 70% said relieving boredom was sometimes you mean a, a reason of that chunk that was not in the 85 to 95% range. That no, was... of everyone that they, oh. they could pick multiple. That's what I said. So it's mm. like, I do see. you ever watch it for these reasons? So like, at okay. least some of the time, a large portion of people are saying, yeah, cause I'm bored sometimes. Or because I'm like upset or yeah, they didn't specify exactly what that meant by regulate emotion, but yeah, it seems like maybe I'm, maybe I'm stressed out. Right. Like I could see people being like, Oh, I'm stressed and I need to kind of relieve some pressure or whatever it is. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, And then this one I also thought was interesting is that in some of those studies, one of the answers that a smaller portion of people would give is for trying to learn, trying to like understand about sex. And that lines up with something that, uh, so Pornhub, which is one of the largest sites of any kind in the world. It's the third largest porn site in the world and the 10th most visited website of any kind in the world, which is wild. Um, But every year for the last few years, they've released a bunch of statistics that they get from people using their site, which has actually been really cool. And a lot of researchers have, have used that to help with their research. Uh, But on their list of the top 10 most searched terms in 2021, the 10th one, which they said surprised their analysts was how to something, you know, how Mm. to give a blowjob, how to have an orgasm, how to make a woman squirt, like whatever it is, right? Like, whatever is how to. So they're kind of seeing like, huh, people are actually trying to learn stuff from it. Hmm. That, and that's really, really interesting because that brings us to the topic of the, the intersection of porn and sex education. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the big concerns that we've talked about on the show before is I know this is definitely a sticking point for me is when there's a trend of a person's primary sex education, sometimes their only sex education coming from porn, especially if we're in a context where the sex education we're getting in school is not accurate, is not up to date, is not relevant to you and the kind of sex that you're going to be having that all that our culture leaves you with is pornographic material to turn to for any kind of other examples of how sex is done. So there's a number of different facets to this issue. So we can explore it a little bit. So on, I guess, the naysaying side, as far as like using porn as your sex education, that yeah, it's porn is designed to be performative rather than realistic. You know, the often porn and especially most mainstream porn is not showing you sex as it tends to happen in real life. It's not showing you what average sex is like. And so that can create some weird expectations at the very least. Most mainstream porn also tends to show a very male pleasure oriented, a very objectification focused version of sex, which isn't always realistic, which leaves a lot of people out of the equation, which leaves a lot of people unseen and also can create some weird expectations around what sex is supposed to be. On the positive side, it can provide exposure. It can normalize certain fetishes, certain kinks, certain preferences. You know, there may be a particular kink that you've only heard about in the ether and it sounds weird or it's hard to understand. But then when you're actually presented with it in a pornographic, you know, context, then maybe it's intriguing or arousing or that's the way that you discover, oh, wow, actually, I think I can't get into this kink or into this particular fetish. <laughs> or I suppose also you you've just come across something and it's like, huh. I didn't, I didn't know that was the thing I would think was hot. And there it is. And here mm-hmm. I am. Which yep. it's funny because we've listed this as like a potential benefit of getting some of your sex education from porn, which I could see a lot of the sites that I came across stating this as exactly why it's a problem because it's, you know, making people into deviants and whatever. <laughs> but clearly we have a different view on kink. Indeed. Well, what is interesting, I do think that this calls up a discussion around sometimes you can be very aroused by something, but not necessarily want to do it in real life. Sure. And for some people that disconnect is uncomfortable and a problem. And for some people that's great because porn provides this other world to be able to kind of scratch that itch and explore that arousal without needing to automatically translate it to real life or pitch a partner on this particular kink or things like that. Of course, 
on the negative side of things, often porn leaves out the consent conversations and potentially can also set people up for harm when they try to pursue kinks if the only way that they're learning about this particular kink is through porn, which not only is not having the consent conversation, but maybe isn't talking about safety, how to perform this kink safely, how to distinguish what looks good on the camera versus what's going to feel good to you or to your partner or what's a what's a best practice that's going to look good when it's photographed versus what's a best practice in real life that that often is left out. My my favorite analogy is if you tried to imagine learning how to drive by watching the Fast and the Furious movies. <laughs> oh my. <Yes>. Oh my. <laughs> uh-huh. Right? Yes, definitely. There are some concerns that men in particular, I think especially men and boys whose only sex education and exposure to female pleasure is through mainstream pornography, there may be essentially this association with seeing women who are performing and sometimes not always performing consensually because that's that's a bigger part of the context that then the images of female pleasure that they're presented with don't actually match real experiences of pleasure. And so those micro facial expressions that someone may be giving that maybe implies that they are in pain, or this isn't the thing that they're super excited about doing that particular moment that all kind of gets blended together into, oh, this is just what pleasure looks like in my partner. And it becomes harder to distinguish those social cues of, is my partner actually enjoying this or are they not, or are they putting on an act? There are some studies that seem to show that this may be debatable, but it's something to consider. And then on a positive side, porn may actually increase tolerance for other people's sexualities. That's according to a study that was published in the Australian Journal of Communication. So again, it can provide that sense of exposure and normalization of other sexualities or other kinks or other interests that are different from your own. I think the main takeaway that we can get from all this, though, is that porn's probably not the number one place to go if learning is what you actually want. And It is so fascinating that they're starting to see more people who are searching for how do I do this? How do I do that? How do I do this? Is it does seem to imply that there's a certain extent where people want to learn how to be good lovers or good partners or to get good sexual technique. And this is literally the only resource that we give people. You know, maybe, maybe this is some books that you can pick up in a sex shop, but that's not always necessarily accessible to people. And so this is the best that you got. And you're a little bit at the mercy of what pops up in your search results, whether it's going to be accurate and educational and well-researched, or if it's going to be something that's just performed. Yeah. But what about the children? Always. We always got to ask about the children. What about the children? I think that as a young person growing up, a lot of the narratives that are put out there are that, you know, kids are going to get into porn and then a variety of things may ensue. Like you are, I don't know, that's all that you're going to believe that sex is, or it's going to turn you into a deviant, like Jay said, or something along those lines. Um, And just to point out like the differentiation between multiple studies that exist out there in the world. A few episodes ago, we mentioned a 2018 study of young adults that showed more frequent porn viewing was associated with lower sexual satisfaction. However, when we looked into research for this episode, there are a number of studies that seem to refute that claim. So it's not as simple as just saying like, you know, if you watch porn as a young person, that means that you're going to have less sexual satisfaction. And so to help unpack all of this, we asked one of our fellow podcasters from the Pleasure Podcast Network, Nicoletta Heidegger, from the Sluts and Scholars podcast to give us some insights based on her experience as an educator, a sexologist, and a therapist. So this is what she had to say. The research on how much sex teens are having did not have an objective definition of what is sex. I think the way that people are having sex and defining sex is changing. Research, especially research on sex, needs to be looked at with a detailed and discerning lens, especially if it's used to create media articles with grabby titles. Porn can impact one's view on their body and skew perceptions of how sex is supposed to look, especially if porn is the only sex education outlet. This is not the fault of porn as a whole, but a greater systemic issue regarding a lack of comprehensive sex education. Because of the lack of sex ed, young people, and even sometimes adults, see porn as an educational tool, which it can sometimes be, 
but more often it is entertainment done by sexual professionals and sexual athletes. Sexual what is the first time I've yeah, ever heard yeah. <laughs> sexual athletes? I like that. Yes, That's exactly. a good way of thinking about it. <laughs> what is a problematic search? For me, problematic is something that is illegal and or non-consensual. Fantasies, however, in my opinion, are not problematic, and labeling them as such may further push people into the shadows and feel ashamed about their desires. And when shame is involved, there's usually a backfire effect, making that person engage more in the shameful desire or behavior. In addition, certain sites like Pornhub are starting to block popular search terms such as Daddy Dom Little Girl, which involves consenting adults and can be really shaming to folks in the kink and BDSM communities. If you need sex education, try some other resources, including The Pleasure Mechanics, Beducated, Scarletine, ODOT School, or Sex Positive Families. There are so many great educational resources out there for different prices and for different themes. Yeah, I really appreciate that perspective. We also have some findings from some various studies. I think there's been a lot of studies on porn, but these are things that we found. So contrary to what a lot of critics will claim, porn and watching porn doesn't necessarily sexualize young people earlier on. The reality is that most young people engage in some form of childhood sex play um, long before encountering porn. I think that's been true for a long time, obviously before super accessible internet porn became a thing that the sexual awakening was a thing for many, many people in, and that looked many, many different ways. Others say that porn also can ruin teens for relationships later in life, but to look at that, you know, divorce rates are significantly lower for the generations that grew up with internet porn than those that didn't. Again, yeah, we have to give the caveat that this isn't necessarily a causal link doesn't necessarily mean that if you grew up watching porn, you're less likely to get divorced, but there's a correlative rink link here. It, it just, it, but it doesn't indicate the other way either, right? Sure. It's not like, oh, everyone's failing at relationships now. Yes. Yeah. And similarly, kids that were raised during the time of free internet porn have turned out to be less sexually active, more likely to use birth control, less likely to have sex while drunk than people who grew up before the internet. There are several studies that have shown that that viewing porn specifically doesn't make men any more likely to commit sex crimes. In fact, there was a UCLA study on adolescent pedophiles showed that the sex offenders that they interviewed watched significantly less porn than non-offenders, which is interesting. There's a small study of 131 college-aged men who even showed that as their self-reported porn consumption increased, their sexism decreased. I'd have to dive more into that study to see how they measured their sexism. It was probably based on survey statements and things like that. Yeah, answers to questions, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then there have been some studies that have looked at countries who have relaxed their anti-pornography laws and looked at crime statistics before and after making porn more legal and more accessible, specifically Japan, Denmark, and the Czech Republic. And they found that after relaxing these laws sex crimes and sexual child abuse decreased even while the general crime rate stayed the same, which is, it, it is interesting. I know, especially with Japan, I'm a part of that conversation often since going there so much that that is a conversation that porn laws in Japan are really interesting. They allow a very wide variety of porn, like very, very off the wall stuff, stuff that even here in the States we might categorize as illegal. And mm. yet, it was very much a thing that they found after these porn laws were loosened that sexual crimes decreased. And Mm -hmm. it is, it is just a curious thing to think about of like, if there's a space again for fantasy that you don't necessarily want to have in reality or is essentially antisocial to have in reality, that maybe that's a good thing or an adaptive thing. Yeah. I mean, to go back to, some of, you know, what we're talking about with, you know, what about the kids is that in, in a lot of those studies and the stuff I was reading, one of the things that the researchers are pointing out is they're like, even though a lot of young people are kind of learning about sex from these things, they also have identified that, that youths do know the difference. Like they know that this is fantasy. So even if it's like, I'm going to learn something from it, but I also know it's not real. And I think that kind of plays into that conversation as well, where it's like, well, maybe if there is an outlet for someone who knows that the thing they like is 
something they wouldn't want to do in real life. I don't know. It's a, it's a very hot button topic. I, I think that, I think that also gets harder when what you're being presented with is less and less extreme and is being presented closer to quote unquote real life as though it's real life, you know? Mm. So it's less about, I'm watching this wild fantasy of, <laughs> you know, I'm like watching this wild fantasy of like someone strung up, you know, from the chandelier and in the middle of a gangbang. And like, I realize that's not real life, everyday sex, but I think it gets harder if you're educated more on the, oh, this is being presented as everyday sex when maybe it's not. Yeah. You know, I think that's where it starts to get a little bit trickier and maybe trickier to tell the difference if your only exposure to real sex education has been that. Sure. So, okay, if we as, I guess, adults and we as a group of young people aren't going to porn to get our sexual education, then where should we go? So as we mentioned before, even though the evidence seems to suggest that porn is not, you know, destroying society and ruining youths and all of those things, it's still not necessarily the best way to get sex education, though clearly it is definitely used for that by many people. Some Scandinavian studies did show that most teens do look to porn for education about the mechanics of sex. That kind of goes back to, you know, the how-to being the 10th most searched mm -hmm. thing on Pornhub. And that same study also pointed out that teens do clearly recognize that porn is not reality, but fantasy, basically what you just said. And in response to the growing searches for educational content, Pornhub started an official sexual wellness page with questions and articles about sexual health, in addition to a channel on their site for educational videos. I appreciate that. I mean, they're kind of seeing the issue here and potentially people just going to their website for fantasy related things. And perhaps that search term, you know, seeing that that search term was such a prevalent, uh, prevalently searched thing that perhaps they were like, screw it, we're going to just add this to it. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, it's, there's not a lot of videos on it. I checked mm. it out. There's like 12 videos on that channel. Oh, right? wow. It's not that's a lot. It. So they're, they're still okay. working on that. Yeah. It's and all the videos were posted like a year ago. So it doesn't seem like they've oh, really kept up on that, mm, unfortunately. But I did find it really interesting to look at a video whose subject is like the types of questions that you do want to know, right? Like, is my penis normal, basically, mm, right? Like, is my size normal? Is it shaped the right way? You know, that kind of stuff. Or like, you know, am I experiencing pelvic pain that's bad or is this normal? Or like very real questions. But like the thumbnails, it's like there's a picture of a penis in the thumbnail for that video mm. about penises. Or like there's a picture of a vagina or there's a picture of people having sex in this one. And it was this interesting like, huh. We got to still make it like, titillating i guess well, no but i mean i think it's kind of great in a way yeah. it's like we've wrestled so long with like people you, you can't even put like photos in sex mm. ed classes because they're mm -hmm. in a school it's like well what if what if the porn sites were actually doing a good job of this what a different sure. world that would be right. anyway that's fantasy land yeah that's an interesting point well considering that there's only 12 videos up this is probably not the best place to go for your adult sex education so just putting that out there there are other places to go that we're going to talk about momentarily and in terms of kids uh, for sex education for kids you should definitely check out episode 337 with miss ashley that was a great episode a lot of people really love that so check that one out yeah. So as far as online resources for sex education, you know, there were some that Nicoletta mentioned earlier, such as the Pleasure Mechanics, O.School, Sex Positive Families, Scarletine is more geared for teens. Um, but uh, another one is uh, Beducated that she also mentioned, who's also one of our sponsors for this episode. Um, so that's cool. If you're going to check that out, use our promo code MULTI, of course. And, you know, stay tuned for the ad break to get more details about what all that involves. Uh, another resource I wanted to put out there is that is kink specific. So if it's you're specifically wanting more in-depth education about kink, it's called kinkacademy.com has tons and tons and tons of videos and video courses on specifics of, you know, how to do certain fetishes 
safely. Um, lessons, some more general on just consent. Some are about starting and ending a scene of any type. Um, and about sexual health, you know, pelvic health, all sorts of things like that. And features some videos featuring our friend Sonny Megatron from the American Sex Podcast, who you will hear from later on in this episode. And for an overview of sexual health, just about, you know, STIs and that kind of stuff, I definitely recommend our free two-part series on episodes 351 and 352 about STIs and safer sex, where we tried to destigmatize and talk about all that in just a real matter-of-fact way. So before we go on to the second half, where we're, we're going to talk about porn addiction, the research on that, as well as talking about ethical porn, and then how porn shows up and affects people's relationships. We're going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors. We love making this show available and these resources available to everyone out there for free. And you taking the time to listen to our advertisers and check them out if they sound interesting and supporting us on Patreon are how we do that. So we really appreciate your time for that. And we will see you after the break. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store, and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. And we're back, and we're hopping straight into yet another hot-button topic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is the topic of porn addiction. So this this topic blew up around 2015, probably a similar time that sex addiction was also cropping up as a topic. I think sex addiction started taking off earlier than that i feel like i remember when did tiger woods have his whole scandal because i feel like in yeah, my understanding that was the first time where there was in, in my memory where there was a celebrity mention of yeah who i think got caught in an infidelity and then the story was oh i'm a sex addict that's yeah, what the story I'm, is okay. and so i'm gonna go to rehab and november 2009 okay i was yeah. gonna guess 2010 so all right yeah, i wasn't too go. far off nope yes yeah. yeah um since then a really large industry has risen up offering treatments therapy for porn addiction so to start this discussion we're going to bring back nicoletta from sluts and scholars to give us some more insights right off the bat in short, porn and sex addiction are not real mental health diagnoses. There are folks who practice from an addiction standpoint, but that approach is not informed by research or approved by global mental health organizations, such as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or DSM. That being said, folks can have porn viewing that feels out of control for them based on how it's affecting their life and or their sense of self. Usually there's something going on underneath the porn watching that is the true issue that needs addressing. This could include not having other coping tools or resources, a shame cycle, not feeling content with oneself or one's relationship, anxiety, depression, or trauma. Sometimes the issue is not about the watching of porn itself, but more how someone feels about their porn watching habits. Yeah, I think that's an analysis that makes a lot of sense. It is that weird thing where, again, I think sometimes our language fails us in the sense that you know, when we talk about addiction from a technical sense that talks, you know, we're referring to literal changes in the brain 
you know, having increased tolerance of whatever the substance is, going through withdrawal if you can't get the substance, and then other kind of symptoms. And the way that porn works in the brain, it's not quite that. There's parts of it that could be similar to that, but it's not exactly that same mechanism. And that's why it gets a little bit confusing, you know, and I think that's why we've seen also a trend of not only talking about sex addiction, but food addiction, video game mm. addiction, these things where it could be a problem, like Nicoletta says, you know, they they could feel out of control, but it's not technically really an addiction, like in the traditional sense that we understand it. And I think because there's that disconnect, it becomes hard to understand how to actually respond to that or to get help for that or to even evaluate if you actually do need help or not. Yeah. And we're going to talk about some more information about that, but I'd say maybe the short takeaway is everyone should stop using the word sex addiction or Mm. porn addiction. It's not an addiction. It just period is not, there's no debate there. Stop calling it that. (laughs) If you want to talk about it as being a problem for you or a compulsion or something like that, that's a different conversation, but it is not an addiction. That's just scientific fact right there. Yeah. So there's a meta-analysis of 15 different studies on pornography, which incorporated almost 7,000 participants. And the analysis showed that there isn't any correlation between the amount of porn that someone consumes and how likely they are to identify as a porn addict. Rather, the highest correlation that they found was between being more religious that meant that it was correlated with being more likely to identify as a porn addict, regardless of how much porn they actually watched, which this tracks with a lot of anecdotal evidence and a lot of stories that I've heard, especially because I grew up in very intense evangelical purity culture, hearing a lot of stories, usually from boys and men about, I keep wanting to masturbate. I must be a sex addict. Oh, wow. You know, even even I heard a story once of someone who went to like Sex Addicts Anonymous. And then when he was explaining, oh, I've actually never had sex. It's just that I have sexual fantasies and I want to masturbate sometimes. And having that rude awakening moment of, oh, my God, like my my sense of what actually counts as too much sexual compulsion or sexual interest is really, really skewed because of the religious upbringing and the religious identity, which I think is really fascinating. And this is known as PPMI, or Pornography Problems Due to Moral Incongruence. And researchers, they have clarified that that moral opposition to porn, despite using it, that moral opposition doesn't have to be religious, but that the correlation on their studies between people identifying as religious and having this problem that they may self-identify as porn addiction or, or otherwise just thinking they have a problem with it, that that correlation was so high that they're basically like, if a patient comes to you saying, I think I might be a porn addict, that's a place to start is, are you religious? And if they say yes, like, well, okay, you're 90% of the way to a diagnosis of like, here's where the actual problem is. It's about the shame and feeling one way about something, but doing it anyway that moral incongruence, right? So this means that the people then who are reporting struggling with watching too much porn or with their self-control over watching porn, according to the studies, they're not actually watching more of it than other people. They just feel worse about it. Hmm. And that feeling worse does have very negative health effects, such as stress and anxiety, depression, decreased sexual well-being because of that shame that that keeps coming up right of you know i mean nicoletta mentioned that a little bit earlier too so like that's the actual health problem there is that incongruence yeah and people who come in for porn addiction you know to a doctor or to a psychiatrist or whomever you know a counselor they're not they're not doing that they're not there because of this objective measure that's you know somewhere out there saying okay you're watching too much porn but instead they're doing it because they themselves think that it's wrong or their partner thinks that it's wrong or the church or something along those lines like some outside force which is very different than an actual compulsive disorder or an addiction or something along those lines so again Jace kind of said this before, but sex addiction and porn addiction, those words, those terms have been used in an attempt to defend people who are accused of sexual assault or abuse like Harvey Weinstein, for example. 
So yet another reason to stop using that term, those terms in general, because it's some bullshit. Okay. Yeah. Alrighty. Let's move on to ethical porn. So this term, this is an interesting term. We've used it on the show before. It's become a big buzzword in the last few years. And it has kind of become harder and harder to sort out what it exactly means. So we're, we called upon another expert to help us with this question. We asked our friend and fellow Pleasure Podcast host, Sunny Megatron from the American Sex Podcast to lend her expertise. And Sunny is an amazing sex educator and a fantastic public speaker. And we'll hopefully be doing a full episode with her in the future. So Chase asked me the question, what is ethical porn and how do we know if we're watching it? And there was some chit chat about ethical porn being a real buzzword in the sex educator world. I could not agree more with that sentiment. And it kind of bugs me. We as a society make rules based on the assumptions and the stereotypes that are inspired by the experiences of the majority of people. And what that does is it ends up shutting down the examination of nuance, the fact that because we're coming from different places with very different experiences, we need to adjust those one true way rules that fit all to actually really fit us. You know, kink is customizable. It's also the subject of the book that I'm working on right now. Polyamory is customizable. Sexuality is customizable and so many other things. So let's get to the ethical porn. I want to clarify something real quick. When I'm saying ethical porn, I'm not talking about ethical porn as a genre. I'm talking about ethical in a human sense. The question, what is ethical porn? Porn is subjective. In an ideal world, I would love to reframe and rephrase that question to what is ethical porn consumption? And in my opinion, that involves the intent in which we consume that media. We hear a lot about porn literacy and the importance of being able to critically evaluate the adult media that we're consuming. And in my opinion, that's really what we should be focusing on. But in order to consume this content with intent and thoughtfulness, that requires us to truly understand the psychology of desire, to overcome our own shame and our own baggage and the myths and the stereotypes we believe. You know, our fantasies when it comes to sex are often not, I hate this term, but politically correct. They're not ethical. They can be the exact opposite of our default world morals and values and beliefs. It's that concept of, oh my goodness, it is so wrong that it is so right. And we all have things in our porn search history that we would never want another human being to see. And the reasons that we like those things are really complex Sometimes those oh-so-wrong fantasies are used as a very healthy outlet, and sometimes they're not, and that's the nuance. There's a great book called The Erotic Mind by Jack Marin, and in it he refers to this concept of the paradoxical perspective, which means we often eroticize things that in a non-sexual context would be unpleasant or gross or disgusting or morally wrong, but It's very normal in human sexuality to then eroticize those things we think are so wrong. And so if porn is really catering to our fantasies and playing those out in a visual sense, well, then some of it's going to be pretty fucked up, right? So when it comes to porn, unless we can recognize all of that stuff at play and then recognize how it plays within ourselves, we can't critically analyze our own situation to see if we're using that porn in a healthy way or we're using it in a way that can be harmful and feed into thoughts and traits that are abusive or unethical and reinforce those things. Different people with different identities and experiences, et cetera, could be watching the same porn. And some people can watch that and find it really empowering and healing and a great fantasy. And other people can watch that and it could reinforce really awful beliefs and behaviors. And 
how do we know the difference? You know, utilitarianism, maybe we're doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people by restricting violent porn, because we know that our society's fucked up. And there's a lot of people that look at this really demeaning porn, and they don't understand the psychology behind it. And they're abusing it. But then there's a problem. That restriction for the greatest good for the greatest number of people might work for those who are very normative in their sexual expression, relationship orientations, etc. But then it hurts people who have non-normative proclivities. You know, it slippery slopes us into stigma, into not trying to overcome our shame, but instead burying it and giving it more power. And that can lead not only to abuse of people in mistreatment of people in our own lives, but also to systemic abuse and oppression, transphobia, homophobia, racism, misogyny, oppression and stigmatization of kinksters and polyamorous people. And the list goes on. It's big, y'all. It doesn't just exist in our sex lives. Restriction to keep people safe from the evil, horrible, abusive porn doesn't end up being empowering or protecting. It ends up being damaging. Really, it subtly tells you that certain things are shameful and not allowed and certain people are, are not good. That's a butterfly effect with ripples that touch so many things and negatively affect so many people that have nothing to do with sex. Another consideration, how are the people who are making these films being exploited? That contributes to whether porn is ethical or the fact that a large percentage of this porn is still being produced by some pretty fucked up people that are perpetuating some really unhealthy ideas to the public. Again, there's no easy answer to any of this stuff, but I really feel that the crux of a lot of this lies within all of us to become more literate and thoughtful in our consumption. The market follows what the people want. And if we each do our part to change what the people want collectively, those porn producers and companies are going to have to follow suit if they want our money. When it comes to ethical porn as a genre or a brand, I am a huge fan of queer feminist porn. First of all, I like the down and dirty, like this is oh so wrong kind of content, and that gives it to me. Secondly, I love the focus on the ethical treatment and payment of actors and those involved in production. And thirdly, queer porn often recognizes that the average person doesn't know the difference between fantasy and reality. So they include conversations about consent and they emphasize that. So in a subtle way, they're helping change the culture and educate the public. Queer feminist porn is great for me, but I know it's not for everyone. And those people still need to learn about the ethics of consumption, the ethics of production, and the importance of doing the self-work. There's many valid ways to change and subvert the culture from the inside out. And the more, the merrier. But I truly believe the end goal is achieving ethical consumption in a way that everyone can determine that for themselves, because there is no one ethical product or medium, or genre that's going to fit everybody. Gosh, I feel like we all just lucked out in getting that wonderful TED Talk yeah, <laughs> from Sunny right, Megatron, seriously. like for free. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, and yeah, folks, we realized that was a long clip, but it's just, she said all of that in a way that was way better than how we could have said it, yeah. <laughs> I think. Like <laughs> She's just so, so smart and, yeah. and so wonderful with these things. And yeah, I, th I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think, like Sunny was saying, introducing more nuance into this conversation means it breaks out of which for me, even, I think it's very easy to think about ethical porn as, oh, it's this handful of websites that charge mm -hmm. this amount of money. Oh, it's this particular genre of porn. Oh, it's this particular porn that you that tends to use these kind of performers. When the question is goes beyond just the product, but also how you're consuming it, how you're using it, and like she said, the intention behind it as well. Yeah. So then that segues us into porn and relationships and how this affects our relationships. So in relationships, porn, porn can be a challenge, right? I think all of us have either experienced ourselves or know someone who has had some kind of 
small or large drama in a relationship because of porn. Um, I think a lot of this is due just to the fact that we're not used to talking openly about it. And because it lives in this weird gray area between something that on the one hand, it is private, you know, like Sonny mentioned, the stuff in your search history, you don't want other people to, to know about even the people that you love. And then on the other hand, it's harmful to keep it a secret completely. So it kind of lives somewhere in the middle there. So then we're just going to kind of cover some, some of the things that can come up with porn in relationships and, and talk about those a little. And the first one that comes up is this concept of infidelity. So I'm sure we're familiar that there are some people out there who feel that watching porn when you're in a monogamous relationship is infidelity, that it's cheating, right? And then others adamantly claim, no, it's not. That's totally different. Uh, one interesting take that I found from uh, Dr. David Lay uh, is that he suggests that watching porn is infidelity if you keep that fact secret from your partner or you lie to them about it. Hmm. And that doesn't mean you need to like show them everything or always watch it with them or something, but being honest about the fact that you watch it is the important part. And I don't know if I 100% agree with him, but I do think that's an interesting angle to take, right? It's like if it's about lying and secrecy, whether or not we put the infidelity label on it, it's not great though, right? Like well, secrets aren't great. If both of you have wildly different opinions about the consumption of porn in relationships, then yes, like you should probably discuss that at some point. <laughs> well, right. that, but that but that falls into I think the same category of and we've talked about on the show many times about incompatibilities, about mm -hmm. differences between partners. I think that falls into the same genre of you and your partner can be on different pages about how much porn you consume, what mm -hmm. kind of porn you consume, if you consume it at all. And that's okay. You don't have to be a united front in that necessarily, but it does come down to, can you still respect and love and appreciate each other in that difference? Or does it cause tension and friction? And that's, that's not a right or wrong binary. If it causes tension and friction, you know, that's something to look at and to examine. And then also maybe that's not the right partnership for you if it causes that much friction as well. You know, you may realize that it's more important to me to have a partner where we're more aligned in that than different, or you may be okay with it being different. Right. And so if you are finding that you're keeping that secret from a partner, the important question is why, right? Is to just examine that and, and start to have those conversations about why you're keeping it secret and really do that hard work that Dedeker was just talking about of deciding if this is something we can live with that we think different about, or maybe you don't think differently about it and you both just never talk about it. <laughs> That's also possible. Yeah. So another challenge spot that can come up with porn in relationships is if porn is being used to compensate for unmet desires sexually in a relationship. Um, this is actually pretty common in marriages like where one partner wants less sex than the other, but where it can become a problem is if that dynamic isn't being discussed, right? If it's being used for that, but secretly there's this like resentment building up about that mismatch. And so it's, again, it's just, as long as this is something that you're communicating and talking about, it's not necessarily a problem, but it is if it's just as a way to foster more resentment. And some fun news from some studies. Beep, 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 beep. Is that the fun uh, news noise? That's the, yeah, that's the news. I think of that more thing, as like breaking you know? news. I think I okay, need a yeah, better breaking, stinger for fun news. Yeah, fun news. Ba -da -ba -ba -bow. Yeah, there you go. Beautiful. Okay. Lovely. So the fun news for non-monogamous people is that studies, the evidence is in, studies suggest that porn use is very unlikely to cause negative effects for non-monogamous people in relationships and that researchers theorize it's because they're probably already having conversations about sex because they're having sex with other people yeah. and they both know about it. So those porn conversations are probably easier and there's less of that kind of un, un unpacked baggage, still packed baggage. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> so something that some people do in relationships, not everybody, but some couples will watch porn together and it can be a way for you know, someone to feel like they're not separated by this thing or something is coming in between them, perhaps it's bringing them together, maybe. And, you know, this isn't for everyone. Not everyone is going to want to watch porn together, but it is a potential out there that maybe you could try. Also, you could share links to porn videos, especially if you share a particular kink or fantasy with a partner. 
And it can be another way of making it feel more like the two of you are on a team or you're having a team activity, even if you don't necessarily watch it together. Feel like you're training to be sexual athletes. Perhaps. Yeah, there you go. I know. I love that. Right. That's amazing. <laughs> that's, that's our new goal for everyone yes. now. <laughs> but, you know, in this, in this context, be sure that you talk about it first. Don't just, you know, send a random link to your partner and surprise them. That might be a little weird if you, especially if you're on two different wavelengths about porn in general, perhaps like have that conversation first and then see, hey, can I send you a link or two of something that's sexy to me? And maybe I think you might find sexy. That would be fun. And also knowing your partner watches porn, it can bring up some jealousy. That's a hot button item that we like to talk about on the show once in a while because it tends to be the low hanging fruit for non monogamy. But a variety of things can cause a partner to be jealous and porn might be one of those things. So the more you're confronted with it, sometimes that exacerbates that jealousy, especially if you happen to get in a situation where you walk in on them, or you see it in their history, if that's something that you two do <laughs> you know looking through each other's history on your phone or on your uh you know i guess laptop device or something along those lines i think this is just another opportunity i love reminding people and even though i know it's hard sometimes in the moment but reminding people that jealousy is something that's often trying to protect you and is pointing to something right? You know, often it's pointing to maybe an area where you feel frustrated or where you don't feel seen or where you're feeling some lack, or maybe there's some really deep ancient insecurities there. And it's a really good opportunity to just examine that. I I think what I've noticed, particularly in the non-monogamy scene, people have sometimes expressed feeling this weird jealousy or weird envy about their partner's porn watching habits, but then feel bad that they feel that way because they think Mm. that they should be enlightened and sex positive and, and their partner can do whatever they want and it's okay, but I still feel this weird feeling. And like, I just want to tell people that that's okay. The feeling is okay. And it's a good thing to look at and get curious about, about what's there for you. It may be something that you bring up to your partner or it may not be. It may be something that you work on by yourself or with a therapist or a friend or something like that. But I think the important step is just taking the time to actually look and get curious about what's underneath that and what's, you know, what's your jealousy trying to trying to make you aware of? Yeah. And bottom line with all of this, just experiment with your partner about how much you want to divulge about the porn that you're watching or how much you watch it or if it's happening at all, you know, experiment how much to share and then how private to keep it as well. And for many people out there knowing that their partner watches porn, that's totally fine. But it may be easier for everyone if you agree to do it while you're alone, for example, like perhaps it's not something that the two of you are going to want to watch together. So yeah, bottom line, just experiment and discuss, metacommunicate, discuss all of these things. That's, that's what we like to do here on this show. And if you're trying to be more ethical in your consumption, and let's say you're actually paying for your porn and supporting creators, you may try out some different ways to make that more or less apparent to your partner. If your partner is someone, again, who is kind of close enough up in your business that this might be apparent. This is inspired by a particular email that we got about someone's situation. So for instance, if you share a bank account, you might look into using separate accounts for those particular purchases if it feels uncomfortable for the two of you to, you know, for each of you to see what exact porn transactions you're, right. you're taking it, part in. It's a funny thing, right? Where it's like, I'm, I'm fine with my partner watching porn in the abstract. But if I know every time they're doing it, sometimes that could feel weird because I just might not be in the right mood for that at that time or in the right headspace yes. for that when I come across it. Like, like Emily mentioned, walking in on someone or finding it in, you know, you type the letter P into the search bar in your browser on the computer you share and it autofills with, you know, some porn URL, uh, right? Like you're getting, in any of these cases, you're getting presented with it when you weren't ready for it or thinking about it. And so maybe that's something that you could find some ways to avoid. 
Yeah. Or for instance, if you're, let's say you're cohabiting, maybe you share a computer, you share a device, you can just discuss options like using different web browsers, using separate profiles, agreeing to always use incognito mode so that maybe you want to just completely remove the opportunity that either of you have to snoop through the history and see what your partner is watching. Or maybe y'all love that, (laughs) you know, (laughs) again, just have a conversation. Like maybe that's hot to you, you know, like, like there isn't necessarily a right or wrong here. What makes it right as if both of you are consenting and feel pretty comfortable about that. I do think these days, I I think I did see some statistics that porn watching is increasingly moving more onto mobile devices, which makes sense. Probably for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, probably for that reason. So maybe this might be a less relevant tip to people, but, but still again, at the end of the day, communicate and experiment, you know, communicate first about how much you want to know, how much you feel comfortable sharing, And then just do your best to be honest with each other after that. And you can run some experiments with how much you share, how much you watch together or don't watch together. And don't be afraid to admit that something doesn't feel right to you or something isn't working. You can try something else. You can realize it may change over time. It may change depending on the season of life that you're in or what's going on on your particular day. Like that's okay. I do think that one of the drawbacks of the sex positive movement is that it puts a lot of pressure on us to feel okay with all forms of sex all of the time. And Mm. there can be this pressure of, Oh my God, if I'm not down to watch porn with my partner, I'm a bad partner. Or if I don't watch as much porn as my partner does, I'm a bad partner. Or if I feel a little bit weird and squicky about my partner's porn watching habits, that means I'm a bad partner. And that's not necessarily the case. You know, the whole foundation of sex positivity is consent and it being you developing a relationship to sex that you want to have. Yeah. So to wrap this episode up, we're just going to do a quick little review here, a little takeaway section. So while in this episode, we focused mostly on contradicting some of the mainstream misinformation about pornography or porn addiction or sex addiction and its effects on society, it is still a nuanced topic and it isn't without its dark side. There's still a problem in the world with sex trafficking, and some of that is connected to the porn industry. Aside from that, there are still porn producers, like Sonny Megatron mentioned, who are just shitty to their performers and perpetuating awful ideas or or abusive, things like that. Like That is a reality, and we can't just ignore that that's true. Then on the other hand, there has been this rise of truly independent porn producers, which has been made possible by any number of sites, you know, sites like Patreon, OnlyFans, Fansly, many others. I know all of those sites have their own history of being really kind to porn, like independent porn performers, and then suddenly switching tactics and wanting to scrub all sexual content from their site and then going back and forth. So I realize none of those platforms are perfect. But the trend that we're seeing is that people are getting more and more opportunities to to support performers directly and creators directly and not have to rely on publishers and studios. And again, like Sonny Megatron was saying, as businesses see that people value more ethically and mindfully created content, they're following suit. They're following the trend. So in 2020, Pornhub removed almost 80% of their total videos. And that's 10 million videos. That's a lot of videos. 80% of their content in an effort to combat abusive and non-consensually posted videos by requiring users to verify their identity before uploading. So, you know, sometimes this change can be slow going, but definitely as people vote, I mean, the word that came to mind was like vote with their dicks. I know (laughs) not everyone who, not everyone who watches porn has a dick, but you know, vote with your clicks. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah, vote, with, vote clicks. with their clicks. That's good. I you know, businesses. You said their dicks, okay. their clits, their whatever it is that you have down there. Your clicks, sticks, and clits. Vote with all those. <laughs> yep. There you go. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's great, right? It's like the old like vote with your dollars thing, but yeah. in the modern day of the exactly. internet, it's you, your clicks are actually what matters, right? Because yes. money isn't always passing in a, a clear "I hand you dollars" kind of a way, right? Indeed. So there's a lot of feelings out there in regards to the porn industry. It's not everyone's cup of tea. It's not, you know, a a gorgeous paradise that everyone flocks to and loves all the time. Some of it isn't the best, but 
we should be destigmatizing it. We should be creating more support for sex workers and talking more openly about sex and pornography, because ultimately this will lead us to a healthier, more consensual and less dangerous world. And one more time, we just want to give a special thank you to our amazing guests who helped us out with this show today. Nicoletta Heidinger is a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. All y'all out there can find her on the Sluts and Scholars podcast or on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars. And Sunny Megatron is an award-winning certified sexuality educator and relationship coach. She's the host and executive producer of the Showtime Originals television series, Sex with Sunny Megatron. And she co-hosts the American Sex Podcast and the Open Deeply Podcast. You can find more of her at SunnyMegatron.com and at SunnyMegatron on all social media platforms. So for our patrons, we are going to stick around and do a, a fun and wild bonus episode where we're going to talk about some interesting results from the porn search trends in 2021, as well as the weird world of non-sexual content on porn sites. On our Instagram, we're posting our weekly question, which is what counts as ethical porn to you? Or maybe put another way, what are the things that you might look for or think about if you're trying to be more ethical in your porn consumption? If you want to talk about this episode with other listeners, the best place to do that is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Emily Matlack, Dedeker Winston, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. 